Hey, everybody, Elizabeth here. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to make sure that you know registration is currently open for our Spring Strong Foundations cohort. Strong Foundations is a five-week strength building program brought to you by me and Morgan Bungers. Coach Morgan Bungers is one of the best, most effective strength training coaches in this country. He has worked with some of the most elite athletes in the world, and now he specializes working with people in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s who want everyday strength. And this is not about being able to push your suitcase into the overhead compartment on an airplane. We need to be consistently and effectively strength training if we want to maintain the strength of our immune system. Muscle is a critical part of our immune system. And if we are not actively maintaining our strength, we are losing it as we age. And that means we are losing the strength of our immune system. It's also a significant component of our overall metabolism, especially our carbohydrate metabolism. Muscle mass plays a huge role in energy, in mood, mental health, bone health, so many different things. This is just not optional, but a lot of us don't do it because we aren't sure what to do. We aren't sure what not to do. We aren't sure if we're moving well. We don't know how to accommodate for our physical limitations or our current level of fitness, and that is why you need a coach and you'd be hard-pressed to find one better than Morgan Bungers. Now, here's the thing about fitness programs. I've experienced this. My mom, who's in her 70s, has experienced this, where you buy a fitness program and then you're like, okay, but I I can't do that workout because I'm not fit enough or I don't have enough balance or I don't have that equipment or that hurts my knees or it hurts my back. And then you're sort of just left to figure it out yourself, which means we often don't do anything. The great thing about Strong Foundations is that Morgan and I are part of it every single day and you have an unlimited ability to ask us questions in a group setting or via direct message so that Morgan can help you scale for you, for whatever equipment you have, for the time that you have, for your fitness level, for your body and your physical limitations. Five weeks, there's two different tiers. There's a beginner intermediate tier. There's an intermediate advanced tier. The testimonials that we have received from our previous clients will blow your mind. You can check them out and also register for your spot by going to primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation. Primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation. If you are an alum, if you have been through strong foundations before, I've already emailed you a renewal link with a special renewal rate. So please use that. If you don't see that email, let me know. For the rest of you, primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation. We start on May 13th. So grab your spot now. You will have these workouts for life. Four workouts a week for five weeks, two different tiers. So you've got 40 workouts total. Plus, there is a five-part series on your pelvic floor. That is an incredibly important part of your physical fitness, of your strength, of your core strength, of your overall health, of your ability to maintain functional mobility as you get older. We want you to be a part of this. You will not regret joining the Strong Foundations cohort. It is an incredible community. 
everybody needs to be consistently and effectively strength training. And if you're not, it's probably because you don't know how to make it work for you. And it can be made to work for you. It needs to be made to work for you. Primalpotential.com forward slash strong foundation to register now. Let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Primal Potential Podcast, the incremental anti-diet solution for effective permanent weight loss. Primal Potential is committed to helping you overcome emotional eating, hormonal imbalances, unhealthy habits, and your dieting mindset through education and inspiration. We don't just talk about what you should eat and what you should avoid. We talk strategy. Primal Potential is bridging the gap between knowing and doing. Each episode will leave you with concrete tips for making positive changes that make a difference. Primal Potential is here to help you lose weight, get healthy, and master fat loss naturally. Well, hey there. I hope you're having a great day. Thanks for joining me. I'm Elizabeth Benton, host of the Primal Potential podcast. And it's kind of funny when I record these episodes. It's just me and my microphone and a massive cup of coffee. And I really like to kind of imagine that you're sitting here right with me, not a whole bunch of you, just just you, just you listening right now. And I, I like to kind of make myself feel like we're just talking about challenges, right? This this tough thing that is navigating and finding our healthy relationship with food so that we can feel great about our bodies and be healthy and be vibrant. And you regular listeners, folks that have been listening for a while, probably get tired of hearing me say this, but since we have new friends all the time, I'm going to reiterate here that this is your podcast. I think that's something that makes Primal Potential a little bit different. I view it as being more yours than mine because my goal with each episode is to address challenges you are having, not the masses, but you specifically, places where you are struggling, areas that you want to conquer, and how you want to improve whether it's fat loss or getting healthier or having a more balanced relationship with food. So if you haven't already, connect with me, will you? I really, really want you to. And you can head over to primalpotential.com and get on the VIP email list. And I communicate weekly with that list, sharing my favorite recipes and workouts and fat loss tips and strategies. But my favorite thing about it is how amazing you all are about responding back, asking questions, telling me where you struggle. And that's how I determine what we talk about here on the podcast, on your podcast. So if you haven't already, go do that. And today I want to talk about, I I first thought about kind of positioning this as food addiction or using food as a drug. But I think that many people might be somewhere on the less intense end of that spectrum and not resonate with strong terms like food addiction or using food as a drug. But I think because it is a spectrum, this is a very real challenge for many more of us than would initially kind of resonate with that idea. And so I want to talk more generally about our relationship with food. And there's no doubt that many of us really do use food as a drug, whether we realize it or not. And I certainly did. And for some people, they might feel like they have a true addiction, you know, especially to sugar. It is a very real thing. But more people 
are kind of in a place just of using food in an unhealthy and or unproductive way. So what I want to do today is help everybody really assess their own relationship with food, identify where they're struggling and where they can improve, where there are those negative associations, and get to a place where we readily and willingly choose food for healthy enjoyment and fuel instead of as a numbing agent or a distraction or a punishment or an emotional barrier, any of the other unhealthy coping mechanisms that many of us fall into either regularly or just on occasion. And this does not mean if you fall into this category of somebody who uses food in a less than ideal way, that doesn't mean you're a binge eater. It doesn't even mean that you're overweight. Food can be a drug of sorts for you and you can have a very destructive relationship with food regardless of your weight. And it always is amusing to me or interesting to me really when I consider how many of us, myself included, judge addicts pretty harshly. If someone uses alcohol to escape or cocaine or pain pills, we're quick to point out that they're trying to escape, that they aren't taking control of their lives or their choices, that they're putting their their potential on the line by letting something else control them. But if we look at ourselves, regardless of our weight, and how the similarities between how we use food sometimes and how we judge other people as an addict, we might see some similarities that maybe we don't necessarily feel really comfortable about identifying. And I don't personally believe that there is any magic threshold of food addiction. I'm not going to say, here are 10 things, and if you do at least seven of them, you're a food addict. I don't think that we should look at it that way. I don't think there's any benefit to that, and I think we should stay out of this black and white trap. This is a very individual thing. And like most things in life, there is a spectrum. So I have no interest in saying this is what food addiction is and this is how you know if you're an addict because it is different for everyone. And here's what's most important. I say that word and every time I say that word, I'm like, people don't like the way I say it. Whatever. Here is what is very important. People should judge their experiences, and their relationship with food against what they want for their life. Not against what somebody else says is normal, right? But look for yourself. Do you feel like you use food? And are you okay with it? Are you at a good place with your relationship with food and how you're using it? If you're not, look at it more closely and attempt to define how you're using it, why you're using it, and how that makes you feel. What problems are you attempting to solve with food and is it working? Does it work for you? So I don't want anybody to say, well, if these are the criteria of being a food addict and, you know, I can check this off the list, then I guess I am. But rather, is is my relationship with food what I want it to be? Is it healthy for me? And everybody's going to have a different answer and a different threshold and a different kind of hope for what their ideal relationship is. But if in any way you feel like, yeah, this isn't what I want for my relationship with food or my relationship with my body, then regardless of whether or not you consider yourself addicted to food or you consider yourself a binge eater or an overeater or having fat to lose or not having fat to lose, then I think that this 
topic can be very beneficial to you. If you are not where you want to be with your relationship with food, with your thoughts about food as it relates to your body and your physique, then I think that there is some investigating to do. So once you've identified, do I use food in a way that I would rather not, also ask yourself, do I have control? So am I using food and am I okay with it? If I'm not, you know, do I have control over the behavior? And one way to kind of tell if you have control or you don't have control is to look at your language. I see a lot of people who say in their emails to me, I'm always doing so good until X, Y, and Z happens and then I lose control, right? So if you use that kind of behavior to describe yourself or to describe certain foods or your responses to certain situations, then that also is a signal that maybe you have some work to do in this arena. All of these things, like most of what I talk about here, I understand in a unique way because it was very real for me. I was absolutely using food like a drug. I was probably on the more extreme end of the spectrum. I did not have control, okay? I was using food for unhealthy things and it's still something that I study and evaluate and keep close tabs on because I have a natural instinct to kind of turn away from my emotions that might be something I work on for the rest of my life, but that awareness is really powerful. For me personally, I convinced myself for a long time that food just made me feel good, right? Not just any food in general, not like broccoli and chicken, but specific indulgences. They gave me a rush. Even thinking about my next indulgence, sometimes a binge, sometimes not a binge, it it made me feel good even just thinking about it or planning it. And I thought it was true that food made me feel good. After a tough day at work, just thinking about going home and not having any obligations and being able to sit down with a TV show and some Mexican food and some ice cream, just thinking about that seemed to calm me a little bit, give me a little bit of release, give me something to look forward to when I was feeling stressed or when I was feeling emotional. Planning my comfort food let me escape for just a few minutes. And when you listen to addicts, like true drug addicts, talk about their addiction, they experience the same thing, like thinking about when they can get their next hit of that drug makes them feel better. And I wasn't addicted. Here's the thing. <laughs> I, I came to realize that I was actually using food as a numbing agent. I did think that it made me feel good. And I thought that I loved to eat and just really enjoyed food. But I was wrong. It actually didn't make me feel good. And I didn't love to eat. It's just that food was my drug of choice. Junk food actually made me feel pretty awful. I don't know how I had fooled myself for so long, but afterwards, after indulging, there was this storm of guilt and regret and judgment and physically feeling like trash. I was not addicted to the food itself, but I was addicted to what it gave me, the escape, numbing my mind and my thoughts. I guess I was addicted to the coping mechanism. I preferred to eat alone. And when I did, I felt like my problems or my stresses or my worries were temporarily suspended. They weren't resolved, of course. They weren't eliminated. There was nothing about my stress or my emotion that food solved. It just distracted me, right? 
I was temporarily out of my mind for a few minutes while the only thing that existed was whatever I was indulging in. But the aftermath sucked, right? Not only did I return to reality with the last bite of food, my stresses came right back, my worries, my problems. And then to add insult to injury, they were compounded by the frustration, the self-loathing. I would be angry with myself for once again not making a healthy choice and indulging in my cravings. And I didn't understand and would constantly beat myself up. I'd be like, why do I always do this? I don't want this, but why does it always suck me in? Why did I tell myself that this was a good thing? Like, it's not like I just did it because I did it. I convinced myself that it was good. And then afterwards, I'm like, why can't I see that this is really bad, right? I mean, it seemed so silly to me and it was so frustrating because I was stuck and I didn't know how to get out. So I started to pay close attention to the types of situations and emotions that preceded the way I would use food, right? I found that I typically caved to those types of indulgences when I was stressed or sad or tired or lonely. And I started paying attention to what I felt as I thought about indulging, as I prepared, like, what am I going to get? Where am I going to get it? Where am I going to eat it? Am I going to eat it in the car? Am I going to wait till I get home? I started to think and pay attention to the emotions preceding the decision to eat and then preparing to eat. And admittedly, you know, and I, it's never fun for me to like, I don't know, confess to some of this stuff because I think there is naturally some guilt and some shame and like a sense of judgment of myself or fear of what how others judge me. But there was excitement and anticipation beforehand, right? But... There were almost no thoughts, feelings, or sensations as I ate. Like, I was almost completely numbed by it. And when it was all gone, oftentimes I couldn't even really remember what it tasted like. Like, it was like I I missed it or something. It was very strange. It was an escape. It numbed me, and it allowed me to kind of hide for a little bit, hide from my feelings. But I was really going into a deeper and darker hole each time I made that decision. It wasn't providing me relief that I was looking for. It was actually making me miserable. Now, I did say that I do think we should stay away from defining food addiction in this box of this is what it looks like and this is what it means and this is what it doesn't look like. But I also think we should avoid the other end of the spectrum saying that it's not real, right? That it's totally in our head because the fact is, I mean, the research proves that certain foods and types of foods do have addictive qualities, especially sugars and processed foods. I've talked before about how there's a lot of money that goes into creating these foods to stimulate addictive regions in our brain, right? Processed foods have a very, very powerful effect on the pleasure or the reward areas of the brain, and they impact our feel-good chemicals in the brain like dopamine, okay? Foods that really create this are going to be highly processed foods, especially foods that have both wheat and sugar. And again, the most commonly things those are found in are, are going to be your processed foods. I think it is a mistake for anybody to simplify this issue of using food or stronger terms like food addiction, saying that it's just as simple as harnessing your willpower, because it's not. And for many people, and really for most people who struggle with their relationship with food, whether they're overweight or not, 
Food addiction is not about a lack of willpower. It is it it is an issue of changing our brain chemistry because of the way that certain foods trigger regions of our brain and chemicals in our brain. And brain imaging shows that high sugar foods trigger our pleasure centers in a way similar to heroin or morphine or opiates and things like that, right? So we see that overweight people and drug addicts have similar responses to these chemicals, though very, very different, right? Illegal drugs versus sugar. The brain chemistry response is very, very similar. And here's another interesting thing. Overweight and obese people have fewer dopamine receptors in their brains, okay? So there's fewer receptors for these feel-good chemicals. So you actually crave things that boost dopamine, that increase the amount of dopamine because it's harder for overweight and obese people in many situations to get that feel-good effect because they have fewer dopamine receptors. The same is true of drug addicts. They have a lower number of dopamine receptors, right? So they naturally crave things that are going to give them that effect because it's harder for them to get it, okay? So we, I've talked about this in previous episodes too about carbs and wheat, that we can block our brain's ability to get those messages from sugars and processed foods when we use the same kind of prescription drugs that block the reception the receptors for heroin and opiates. I mean, that's really, really powerful stuff. So we need to understand that the response to sugars and processed foods is very, very similar to the response to drugs and overweight and obese people. And it's kind of a question of chicken or egg, right? Do we have fewer dopamine receptors because we're overweight or obese? Or are we overweight or obese because we have fewer dopamine receptors? Either way, it doesn't really matter. We just need to understand that there is a higher sensitivity and it is a real thing. So we can let go of that guilt of I'm just not strong enough or I don't have the willpower. It is a true biochemical issue. And here's the other thing. We can develop a tolerance to sugar just like drug addicts can develop a tolerance to their drug of choice. And then what happens is we need more and more and more to feel that effect, right? And so that perpetuates the cycle of addiction. That That's a very, very real thing. Initially, it might be hey, I have this cup of ice cream and I feel good. And down the road, it's I just devoured the pint because you don't get the same rush, the same physical reaction from a lesser amount like you used to. So these are all very real things. With that said, that doesn't mean it is hopeless, just like it's not hopeless for someone to overcome an illegal drug addiction or a prescription drug addiction we still absolutely positively have the power to overcome a food addiction or a sugar addiction or just an unhealthy relationship with food. And we're going to talk in a couple of minutes about uh, some of the practical ways that we can do that. I said that I don't want to say, 
you know, here are the 10 signs of food addiction. If you have seven or more, you know, this might be a problem. But I do want to bring awareness to some of the ways that we can identify if we are using food. And it's not to classify anybody as having a sugar addiction or having a food addiction, but really just to take an honest look at our behaviors. And all of these things, again, I've been there, I've done that. I still work on my awareness with these things. One thing that was very common for me was justification, right? So I would talk myself into why I should overeat or why I should indulge even though I hadn't planned to because I had a bad day. Other people, very common to say, you know, the kids were driving me crazy or I'm super emotional or I'm stressed or I'm hormonal or whatever it is. The act of justifying is one sort of red flag. And for me, I have found it helpful to identify my own common red flags. So as soon as I notice those thought processes popping into my head, that puts me on high alert. Like, okay, all right, I know what's going on here. I can let it go and go down the rabbit hole, or I can sort of be on guard of my thoughts and say, this is kind of a high alert time. Let's really pay attention to what's going on here. So justification is one thing. Loss of control is another. That sense of, I didn't really want it, but I just couldn't stop or I didn't even notice. And then I had eaten the whole box. Another thing is regularly breaking promises to yourself. Is that argument of just this once or just one or I'll start tomorrow, is that true? Or is it usually a lie? Now, I'm not saying you set out for it to be a lie, but are you breaking those promises to yourself on a regular basis? Are you hiding what you eat or how you indulge? And this could be sneaking food, or it could be always eating alone or hiding the evidence. Oh my gosh, the story of my life, right? I've talked about how I started sneaking food when I was just a tiny, tiny little kid. But even as an adult, when, I mean, who cares, right? It's my decision. No, What do I care what anybody thinks? I would still hide and sneak and eat in private. And that's just, you know, that's not a healthy, normal behavior. There's no judgment there, but really identifying like, yeah, that might be a trigger that I need to make some changes here. And even before making changes, When you notice the desire or the thoughts about hiding, eating in private, eating alone, hiding the evidence, let that just be at first just an awareness like, hmm, okay, there's that thing again. So before it's even about changing the behavior, just work on becoming aware and identifying it as what it is. Not to do something different, not to make a different choice, but just to say, That's one of my things, and here it is, and identify it. And I talk a lot about why I track what I eat, how much and when, my hormonal biofeedback, things like that. But this is something else I'll do. There are common triggers that I have, and when I sense them, think about them, feel them, I jot that down because I want to always be improving my awareness of why I make the choices I make, why I think the things I think, and why I eat the things I do. If you really want something different, right? If you really want something different for your body, if you really want something different for your life, but your actions aren't really in accordance with what you want, that's another sign that maybe you need to bring some attention to this thing. So for example, for me, I wanted to lose weight for so long and yet 
I was binging and I was sneaking food and I was, you know, over restricting for weeks or days at a time and then overindulging for days or weeks at a time. And, and so my actions were not in alignment with my intentions or my goals or my aspirations. And that is another one of these sort of red flags of like, oh, I might need to take a closer look at this. So justifying losing control, breaking promises to yourself, hiding or sneaking food, and then just feeling like your actions aren't really aligned with your intentions. All kind of signs to look more closely. And those things might look extreme to many of you, and they can also be much more mild. It can be just the frequency of cravings for certain foods. Intense cravings are a sign that maybe there's a little bit of using food for something or a little bit of addiction to sugar and things like that. Finding that you overeat, you eat more than you intended to, right? Two Oreos turned into 12 Oreos. Another flag to tune into and pay attention to the behavior. Also feeling guilty, feeling an emotional attachment to particular foods. That emotional attachment can be another one of those flags to say, maybe I need to take a closer look at this. So now that you have a sense, if you didn't already coming into this, of whether or not your behavior might need some adjusting, let's talk about practical implementation strategies so that you can start to make small gradual changes to improve your behavior and reach your goals. The first and most important thing, I think, is identifying what really triggers you. Now, this might be food and it might not be. It might be a situation. It might be an emotion. There isn't a particular food that triggers me. And I talk all the time about how I love ice cream, but it's not like I drive by Cold Stone Creamery and like, you know, can't stop my car. When I used food on a regular basis, it was almost always in response to an emotion, okay? It wasn't in response to, oh my gosh, it's ice cream, I can't stop. That was preceded by some type of emotional trigger. So it might be a food, it could be a routine. In one of the uh, episodes that I did with Tim Bauer, Tinier Tim, he talks about how his routine was to, on autopilot, go to the fast food joint in the morning. So that was a routine trigger. It might be alcohol. It might be an event. I mentioned a couple minutes ago that I track what I eat, right? The reason that I do that, and I don't just track what I eat. So what I track, uh, and I do this, people ask what I use to track. I use a Google document. And the reason I do that is because I can access it from my phone or my computer. It's always with me. Uh, so I don't have to like carry around a food journal. But I'm also not using an app that tells me calories and other stuff I don't care about. And because in addition to tracking what I eat, how much and when, I'm tracking my hunger throughout the day. If I notice that I'm exceptionally hungry at a particular time, I'm going to track that. If I notice that I have an extreme craving for something in the evening, I'm going to write that down. Uh, if I notice that my sleep quality has been off, I'm going to do that. So it's easy for me to use that uh, kind of a blank document to do that. But the value is that then it's in black and white in front of me. Sometimes we can't look back and say, oh yeah, I guess, you know, I had a tough meeting at work and I worked late and that's what led to, you know, two pizzas and two liters of Pepsi. When we have it in front of us, it's black and white and all of a sudden those patterns emerge. So write down the emotions, write down what's going on, write down the people that are involved in the situation or the event. 
And if you have questions about this process of identifying what really triggers you, let me know. Ask. Get on that uh, VIP email list that I talked about at the beginning and email me and let me know because I'm working to create some very specific emotional eating resources that kind of tie into this issue of using food and food addiction. And I'd love to know where this process trips you up, where you struggle, because it's rarely about the food. Okay. yes, the food is part of the problem, but it's almost always about what drives us to eat the food. And awareness comes first. So if you aren't currently tracking what you eat, how much and when and how you feel, your emotional triggers definitely start there. From there, though, we have to realize that everyone has a different approach. That's why I don't like diets and food lists and all of this stuff, because everybody is totally individual. Everybody will have a different approach. And I was listening to a podcast recently. I wish I could remember what it was. I'll have to look and see if I can put it in the show notes at primalpotential.com. But they were talking about how different people have different needs when it comes to change. And, And they talked about two different groups of people, abstainers and moderators. So some people need to completely abstain, cut it out completely. There's no such thing as moderation. And Tinier Tim talked about this in our first episode. He considered himself a sugar addict and had to abstain completely, completely, no sugar, no white flour. He didn't make exceptions. There weren't, you know, occasional indulgences or cheat meals or whatever else. Some people need to abstain completely. Now, my personal approach has been different. I'm more of a moderator. But I guess, to be honest... I kind of go in periods based on what I need. I have periods of abstaining and then I have periods of moderation. It's based on my goals, but it's also based on my emotional state. I know when I'm vulnerable and I know when I need to kind of not go down that rabbit hole. And here's something to consider. We all know ourselves pretty well and keeping that tracking document will help us to identify where we fall into. If we try moderation, it doesn't work. Try abstaining, right? If we try abstaining, it doesn't work try different moderate approaches and we'll we'll talk about that but cravings are interesting because they come from possibility for some people they know that moderation won't work for them because the mere thought the mere possibility of having it triggers them like knowing you can have a cheat meal in 6 days means 6 days of obsessing over that cheat meal and thinking about it and planning it and all of this stuff like that's no way to live and there's been some interesting studies done on cravings, and they were done with flight attendants who are smokers. And their cravings for cigarettes weren't based on a certain amount of time, like, oh, you know, after 90 minutes without a cigarette or two days without a cigarette or whatever, they they started to have a craving. It was based on opportunity. It was based on possibility. So it was based on how close they came to the time when they knew they could smoke. When they came to the time as they approached their destination, that's when the cravings got strongest. So they're based on possibility or opportunity. So really assess yourself. Are you at a point where you're ready to try moderate strategies? And maybe you aren't now, and that doesn't mean that you're forever an abstainer, right? Maybe you know in your heart, though, that abstaining would make you totally crazy, and so you have to identify a moderate approach that works for you. Everybody is going to be different. You have to identify your triggers and then try different approaches. With moderation, different strategies will work for different people. 
For some people, like if wine is their big trigger, maybe you just start with leaving one sip in your glass, right? It's not about going from a bottle of wine to a glass of wine. It might just be, I'm going to leave one sip in the glass and I'm going to practice that until it feels effortless. With ice cream, maybe it's that you just don't bring it home. You don't buy the pint. You don't buy the gallon. If you're going to do ice cream, you go out and get it. And even if that means that every day for seven days you're at the ice cream shop buying a cup of ice cream, it is a practice. And if you know that bringing in that pint, bringing in that gallon is a slippery slope, don't do it, right? Then there are some other kind of more tangible strategies outside of the mindset realm of things between you know, abstaining or trying a moderate approach, balancing your blood sugar is huge, 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 huge. That alone is going to have a massive difference on cravings and mood because so many of these things are emotional issues. When we start to reduce the wild emotional fluctuations, that alone has a major difference on our food choices and our food behaviors. Part of that is building in a balanced breakfast. And this isn't about fat loss, okay? So even if your goal is not fat loss, focusing on protein and fat in the morning is gonna go a long way towards balancing that blood sugar, reducing cravings, and stabilizing your energy and mood. Everything is easier, right? In life, (laughs) everything is easier when our hunger is stable, when our mood is stable, when our cravings are stable, and our energy is stable, okay? so. When we make food choices to balance our blood sugar, when we have that breakfast of fat and protein, I did an entire episode, I think it's Q&A 6, on a fat loss breakfast, but the same principles apply here, that will really make a big difference. The other thing is getting rid of sugars and processed foods. And here's why. I use this analogy with my coaching clients, and it seems really elementary, but it's really true. The region in our brain that is stimulated by sugar, I like to think of as this little sugar monster. And the more we feed the monster, the stronger and louder the monster becomes. And the less we feed the monster, the more it loses its power. So starve the dang monster. If you're struggling with sugar cravings, then start to reduce sugar. For some people, those abstainers, cold turkey, out, it's got to go, right? It's not easy, but it's got to go. The moderators do a little bit less each day, and there are ways to do it. It might be leaving one bite left of whatever it is. It might be doing a time approach, right? For some people, maybe it's just, I don't have sugar or processed foods before 8 a.m., And you do that for a few weeks and then you move it to 9 a.m. and then you move it to 10 a.m. and then you move it to 11 a.m. until you get to the point where you are going most, if not all, of the day without those sugars. So if you are struggling with the sugar cravings and that is what is really impacting your mood and your cravings and your lack of control, starve the sugar monster. It also goes without saying to get more sleep. We balance our mood, we improve our energy, we reduce our hunger and cravings when we are well rested. So if you are struggling with using food, right, with poor food choices or not feeling control, everything is better when we sleep more. So absolutely, positively do that. We always have personal responsibility. So I don't talk about this topic so that we can sort of wash our hands of it and say, well, I don't have any control because I'm just an addict. We all have control. 
We all have personal responsibility. We all have the ability to say, no, thank you, not now, not today, not this time. So always remind yourself of your personal responsibility. If you want something better for your life, if you want something better for your body, if you want to be more confident and have more energy and have a balanced relationship with food, it's just you. It's all you. It's your choices. It is 100% your choices. You can choose to pick one of these strategies and start to practice it, or you can choose to say, that's interesting, and do nothing and say, it's just too much. I just don't have time, or maybe next week, or maybe next month. You always have an option. You always have personal responsibility. And I say that knowing how very hard it can be at times. And the flip side of that is you do not have to be perfect, right? You do not have to be perfect. You can focus on progress. If you are a candy bar junkie, that's fine. Instead of eating the whole candy bar or three candy bars, have, you know, three quarters of the candy bar or, you know, two candy bars, whatever. Always look for opportunities where you can just make a little bit of progress. And I really, really hope, I really hope you'll take me up on my offer. Go over to primalpotential.com. Right on the homepage, there is a box on the top half of the page for the VIP email list. Put your email in there. And when you get stuff from me, if you have questions or you have suggestions or you feel stuck, respond. Engage with me. That's why I'm here. This is your show. I genuinely, genuinely want to help you. So until next time, guys, stay healthy. At LensCrafters, we value expertly tailored eye care, provide state-of-the-art eye exams, offer a wide assortment of designer brands and high-quality lenses, because everything we do at LensCrafters is for every site that makes your life special. We offer 50% off lenses with frame purchase, shop in-store and online. Book your annual eye exam now on LensCrafters.com. LensCrafters, because sight. Eye exams are available at the Independent Doctor of Optometry at or next to LensCrafters. Doctors in some states are employed by LensCrafters. Offer valid to April 2nd, 2023. See associate for details.